Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, August 4th. We begin with a look at Wednesday night's federal conservative leadership debate. We discuss the unique format of the debate and if the absence of two key candidates will have any impact on the vote, which takes place September the 10th. Next, it's been one year since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. We catch up with Ferdows Asefi, PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology from the University of Toronto, to look back at the past 12 months and the impact Taliban rule has had on citizens. Then we look at the state of health care here in Alberta. From a serious shortage of ambulances on a daily basis to skyrocketing bonuses for AHS administration, we discuss with Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. And finally, goji berries and kale are out and phytoplankton is in. We learn about the next big thing in superfoods, which was discovered by chance. So we'll talk about the debate last night, the three of five conservative leadership hopefuls facing off, as you said, Andy, in the intro. You know, I just found it really interesting that two of the main players decided that it wasn't good enough for them to be there and they pulled out to do their own campaigning in their own way. Yeah. I don't know, at a $50,000 fine, I don't know that that's enough because I think, you know, you, ha- you kind of have to give people the opportun- opportunity to find out who you are, where you stand on certain issues, and I think it's pretty ignorant to pull out for both of them. Yeah, something we've talked about, not just at the federal level, but provincial level. You could even bring it down to the civic level. When did we lose that opportunity to, to find people's platforms, to find the path that these potential leaders are going to take us on. Isn't that what it's all about? It's what it used to be about to a certain... Yeah, yeah there was some mudslinging, but did we call this a 60% debate because, yeah, only 60% of the candidates were there. And I'm shocked to see this kind of crept up on us, Sue. Only six weeks left till September 10th. We're getting closer. And, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of the pollsters have said those people, and it's a record number of uh, uh, people who have the, uh, a dog in the fight, 600,000 potential votes. I think it might be 617,000 people have the opportunity to vote for this leader. Um, that compares to about half, around 300,000, when Aaron O'Toole Interesting. Uh, won the leadership. Interesting. And, and I'm curious, you know, does it does it turn people off that these two didn't participate? Does it affect things? Yeah. yeah. Or, or is it like, oh, well, you know, they're the front runners anyway, so who cares if they take part? <laughs> well, I think it's really important. Yeah. I, I personally, if someone pulled out of a debate like that, and I don't care what party you're with, I, I don't. I, that would really turn me off. Yeah, I would think so. If you, particular, if you haven't had your mind, if your mind's made up, your mind's made up. Your mind's for made sure, up for sure. But I do like it. I want to give a nod to it, and I know some people may have poked fun at it. I do like what they had for the format. From the clips I've seen, from the images, it does look like they're sitting around a table, maybe at a wedding. It's a blue tablecloth, <laughs> yeah. and they're sitting there having. Basically, uh, almost a discussion. And by all accounts, and we're hoping to break it down and, and get more analysis of, of how the night went, but by all accounts, they more so took pot shots at the current liberal government, uh, which kind of presented a little bit of unity. They did mention those folks who did not make uh, the time to sit down at that blue table. But, you know, it, it doesn't sound, it sounds like you had an opportunity to, to kind of get some you know, meat off the bone as far as what these candidates are interested in. And maybe that's, you know, a better format them, to have smaller them, yeah, groups. They, maybe they won because they'd had maybe that Maybe so. I mean, I, you know, and I thought it was just kind of catty of Pierre Poliev who made fun of the, the those who did show up sitting around that table. He said it looked like, you know, kids at a card table without any cards. So, of course, while he's off politicking, you know, and doing his own thing, he makes fun of the people who did show up for people to, to learn what they stand for and what they believe in. I just thought of something incredible. Maybe next time give them cards and see it's a death match. But maybe <laughs> It's not a bad idea. Maybe on the cards, 
everybody's dealt five cards, and, and there's a question about, and, and they have to hold them, and they look like playing cards. I like that. And you idea. play some Kenny Rogers gambler in the back. No, I'm <laughs> making <laughs> fun no now. No one to hold them. No one to fold them. But you know, and 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 but maybe that is we we can take pot shots at that debate if you want to have fun with it. It was a table. But maybe this gets down to, in the fact that two candidates outright chose not to show up, maybe we have to look at the structure of the debates. Maybe the way we've done debates is done. Mm-hmm. Maybe we, we should be looking at new ways to get these candidates out there, kind of, you know, trading barbs to a certain extent, but, you know, explaining who they are. Yeah, I, I mean, because you learned a lot from the three who did show up, Jean Charest, you know, he kind of actually mocked the two, Leslie Lewis and Pierre Polyev, who didn't show up, saying, you know, if we're going to unite the party, you kind of have to show up yeah. and show here, a here. bit of a united front here and, and show yourself and, you know, to use your, you know, show your cards to the people, right? Um, I don't know. I well, just... You know, yeah, yeah. when you mention it like that, Sue, it's almost a disrespect to the party, first of all, because would you see these two candidates if this was an election uh, pulling out? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't see a candidate pull out when you can really when no. you're going for for the gold for for all the marbles, so to speak. Another cliche. I, I've got a lot of them. <laughs> but but to to say, okay, you know what, <laughs> uh, uh, CPC members of the nation, your time isn't that important. And I th- I think that the debate format. We are very busy people. Some of us work two jobs. You might have families, a lot mm-hmm. of outside interests to have everybody in one spot at the same time. And, and hear their voices, you know, within, within a conversation. A lot of people, I would think the debate would be that one-stop shop instead of going through everybody's platform online and trying to dig through it. You'd think. I mean, this was the last official debate of the leadership race. So, you know, to have two of the, the main people kind of say, ah, nah, I don't feel like going. I'll do, yeah. do my own thing. Well, we can throw that out on the text line. Yeah, sure. Is this something? And I mean, I know that not only in this case with the CPC, but also with the U, UCP, you have to have you have to be in that tent this is a little bit yeah a little bit of a different thing right absolutely yep but generally do you go out of your way for debates is this something that a if you don't have the chance to watch that you dig down and look at the yeah, results you can at least get the highlights right yeah. there's all there are always people who will break or, it down yeah. for you or is this or is this something that you like to do on your own whether it's reading through old school newspapers or hopping online uh, you know, or do you have hash it out at the coffee shop with your friend who has a, a very similar mind or maybe a different, an opposing view? August 15th marks one year of Taliban occupation in Afghanistan. And a new report from the UN details the reality of human rights in Afghanistan under the Taliban rule. Joining us with some insight into the details of the report is Ferdous Asefi, who's a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Toronto. Thanks for joining us, Ferdous. Appreciate your time. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Can you give us some of the highlights of the report and, and you know, then we can get into some of the revelations that uh, you really come out of it. But w- what struck you about the report most? So the report jumps into the situation in Afghanistan since the takeover. And the report is troubling, but the events that have occurred are not shocking to many Afghans because this is the Taliban that we're talking about. Um, we know that from the 1996 to 2001 regime that we've seen you know, crimes against humanity or target violence against um, ethnic groups in Afghanistan. So the report highlights civilian casualties, restrictions on women's right and freedom of speech, extrajudicial killings and persecutions of ethnic groups. We also, it also talks about forced displacement, displacement, target reprisal killings of those who work with the government and Afghan army, censorship of media outlets, protests, and the arbitrary treatment of journalists. Um, so 
But there's a lot that's been underreported due to the difficulties in gathering evidence against the Taliban, which has censored the media and mistreated journalists. Last year, the UN Development Program um, said that this is the world's worst humanitarian crisis. So many of these elevations have been things that Afghans saw eventually happening under the regime. Um, that was uh, some of the major highlights um, that were coming up from the UN report. So, Farduz, as you mentioned, the report covers a lot of ground as far as you know, giving us updates, giving us kind of a snapshot of, of what it's like one year in. What are some of the recommendations that the report makes as far as the region is concerned? So the report makes several recommendations to both the regime and the international community since the takeover. Um, I reckon a recommendation, for example, was to stop indiscriminate attacks that targeted civilians immediately. And if not, it may account to crimes against humanity. However, there have been reports that the, the regime has committed um, extrajudicial killings in Panjshir, where, for instance, um, they collectively punish residents whom they accuse of siding with resistance movements. So our recommendation was then was for the regime to engage representatives of ethnic and religious minority communities to provide security, um, recommending to uphold amnesty for former workers, government workers, um, ensuring the rights of journalists so that they can be, um, so that they can access information without fear of attack, and uh, for schools to be open for, uh, for girls so that they have a quality, a quality education. But none of these have been followed um, or, or addressed by the Taliban, whereas for the international community, it was recommended that they still work to facilitate financial measures and assistance to support the human, humanitarian needs of Afghans and have some sort of dialogue with the regime so that the rights of Afghans are protected. However, we know till today that these rights have continued to be violated despite recommendations. You talk in the article uh, in the conversation for Deuce about uh, the Taliban's war on women. What does life look like for women right now in Afghanistan under the Taliban rule? Yeah, so so currently under the Taliban rule, um, secondary schools for young girls are, are banned uh, for almost a year now, um, where this then becomes a de facto ban on university because they won't then have the qualifications to go to university or to take a university entrance exam. Um, the, re- the regime refuses to acknowledge violence against women. Parks are park visits are segre- segregated by sex. Uh, women were recently sacked from their jobs at the finance ministry in favor of male relatives. Um, so, a recent report by Amnesty, Amnesty International describes the situation of Afghan women as death in slow motion. And essential services regarding gender-based violence have also been decimated. Um, secondary schools, like I said, have to be opened, um, and Afghan girls must be provided the opportunity to learn. Ferdous, uh, big news over the weekend that Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawar was killed by a drone strike. So it brings to the question just how active currently is Al-Qaeda and, and other terrorist groups, for that matter, in Afghanistan? Yeah, so that was uh, major news uh, for sure over the weekend. Um, I'm not sure how active that they are. It seems that they seem to reposition themselves um, under the Taliban regime. And there have been many reports um, that they've said, mentioned that there have been a high degree of getting back involved um, under the Taliban regime. And based on other reports, other extremist groups such as ISK, they have been active in Afghanistan, particularly 
um, against violence and attacks against the Hazara population who are already facing an imminent ethnic cleansing under the Taliban regime. Andy and I were talking about this off air that, you know, this a year ago and it was all we were talking about as the American military particularly pulled out of Afghanistan and, and everybody knew that Taliban was going to be taking over. And yet it doesn't seem to be really talked about too much anymore now that we're a year later. So, you know, does the report talk about kind of where we need to go to move forward and to help these people? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. It seems that um, the situation in Afghanistan has become um, normalized or um, we aren't sensitive to, to the issues anymore um, because violence in Afghanistan has been going on or the wars in Afghanistan have been going on for over 40 years now. Um, so this is a country that has faced poverty, humanitarian crisis um, over and over again for decades. Um, for ways forward, you know, would be not recognizing uh, this terrorist regime uh, because then it normalizes the violence in Afghanistan. The only way forward is uh, one of the major steps would be um, opening schools for um, for girls. Um, that is the bare minimum. Um, other than that, we, we have to wait to see uh, what happens um, as we move forward. Ferdous, uh, you're uh, obviously at the University of Toronto, so I'm wondering, and this is a little off the off the beaten path for the questions here, to do with the report and the conversation that you had been part of. But do you believe that we as Canadians are doing enough to help the people of Afghanistan, or is the Canadian government doing enough at this point? Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's another really good question. So Canada has, they, they have mentioned that they would bring a cap of 40,000 Afghans um, into the country. Recently, I think almost 17,000 Afghans have uh, been able to come into the country. But in a recent report, I read that the the government is slowly um, uh, re- uh, like stopping their uh, like they're not accepting new referrals into the program because they're still processing around twenty two uh, twenty two thousand more application applicants. Um, but however, I think that the Canadian government can do more and are able to do more because there are many uh, refugees still stuck in refugee camps for uh, six, seven, eight months and. Applications need to be expedited more quickly um, so that because their lives are on the line, individuals are still in hiding from the Taliban. Um, so this is a life and death situation for, for many Afghans who are escaping persecution, um, uh, reprisal killings um, um, by the Taliban regime. But I think um, there is like a moral obligation to uh, support Afghans and to uh, provide humanitarian assistance to Afghans, um, but I think that the, the, the Canadian government is able to do more, um, and we are able to try our best to do more uh, for Afghans. Thank you so much for your time this morning and breaking down that UN report. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for Dose. Sefi is a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Toronto. According to data from Alberta Health Services, Calgary declares a red alert hundreds of times a month. Not only have hours been reduced at urgent care departments in Airdrie and South Calgary, but with those red alerts declared hundreds of times a month due to a lack of ambulances in our city, uh, things are looking rather dire. Joining us to discuss the challenges facing Alberta Health Services, we're joined this morning by Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us this morning. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me on. What exactly is the issue with the hours being reduced at Urgent Care in Airdrie and now here in South Calgary? Do we not have the staff? What is exactly the problem? Yeah, we're very concerned with what's happening in the healthcare system. It's clearly struggling, and the main root of that problem is staffing, as you said. Uh, you know, we're seeing across the province, you can go look online at the map of closures of beds and units. It's from one end of the province to the other. And every time that happens, that dominoes into the rest of the system. So having South Calgary or Airdrie Urgent Care with reduced hours moves to other hospitals in the region. We've seen Red Deer send surgeries into Calgary. We see red alerts constantly in EMS. It's all connected to the same issue, which is why for months, Friends of Medicare has been calling on the provincial government to take a leadership role in workforce planning. We need to retain the healthcare workers we have. We need to recruit and train more workers. But we haven't seen that leadership from the provincial government. At this point, they seem more focused on their own leadership race than actually leading our healthcare system. So we're very concerned at where our healthcare system's at right now. Chris, your focus when it comes to Friends of Medicare is the province of Alberta. Uh, but is this an Alberta-specific issue, Chris, or is, it, is this happening in other provinces across the nation? There are staffing issues across the country. I would say here in Alberta, uh, we're seeing some of the worst outcomes of that. It's also, uh, you'll see the provinces who've taken a more proactive approach uh, to COVID are seeing fewer issues. Um, you know, we've been the first in the country to declare COVID over many times. And we're the last to enact policies that would protect Albertans in our healthcare system when another wave comes like we're in right now. We were the last to have fourth doses. We're the last to roll out um, vaccines for children under five and so on. So it's a pattern we're seeing over and over. And every time we do that, we're putting more and more strain on our healthcare system rather than taking any sort of proactive approaches to protecting it. Chris, as the executive director of Friends of Medicare, your thoughts on what Rachel Notley commented about yesterday was certainly a lot of people in the province talking about it. The cash bonus paid to Chief Medical Officer Dina Hinshaw in 2021, uh, Notley calling it galling at a time when UCP government was asking frontline workers to take pay cuts. So your thoughts on that bonus pay? Yeah, it shows where the focus is, and it's not on that retention of the healthcare workers we need. Uh, you know, they were calling for wage rollbacks from nurses, from healthcare workers. They went to war with doctors, which has driven many of them out of the province, adding that strain to our system. People are now going to urgent care in ERs to get treatment because they don't have a family doctor. But also the government's just refusing to listen to simple solutions. You know, uh, HSAA has called uh, to put EMS workers who are casual onto full-time contracts. We have hundreds of paramedics who are working on 90-day rotating casual contracts without benefits, without sick days. We could put them onto a real contract, retain those workers in the system, and help with that red alert system. We're not doing that. In the end, if, if the money was there, if the compensation was there and these contracts were rectified or at least agreed upon to a certain extent to, to, to keep these employees, much-needed employees, happy. Are there enough health care providers in the province? We're, we're hearing that there are not enough doctors, period. We can't create doctors in six months. Are there enough? Yeah, and that's why we need a two-pronged approach. We need to retain the folks we have in the province right now. We need to have them working. We need to have them not burning out because they're working so much overtime to keep the system going. And then we do need to recruit uh, and train up other workers to bring them into the system um, so it's a two-pronged piece uh, but there are workers in the system right now you know we're struggling with people being off six because of COVID again there's all these issues that are connected in the system and that's why we're calling for a provincial leadership in having a workforce strategy we need to look at this as a system issue not just one-offs in each department as it's happening 
Chris, not sure if you can speak to this. Andy and I were talking about it earlier in regards to doctors and nurses coming from Ukraine, Ukraine, for example, or other countries and getting them trained up, getting them to the level that we train our doctors and nurses here in Canada and getting them on the front lines. Is there any program for that? Yeah, that is uh, an ongoing problem of uh, recognition of credentials from other jurisdictions. Uh, We've always been calling on the government to improve that system. We know there are people living in our province who are trained as nurses or doctors who can't work in those roles in Alberta. They're working often in the healthcare system, but at other uh, positions because we don't recognize their credentials. So we always need to be improving that system, and it will help us with the issues we're facing right now. Excellent. We, we appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Chris, and, and doing what you do. Perfect. Thanks for having me on. That is Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. You heard it. It's happening in other provinces. But does it matter to you if it's happening in other provinces? If you have a loved one and you're calling that ambulance and there's simply not mm-hmm. uh, the horrific dog attack on an 86-year-old woman. And it took... that we. Too much time for names yes. to get to her. It is. Or have we become desensitized? And, and you know, you've got to. You've got somebody. You've got to get to urgent care. Well, what are the hours for that urgent yeah. care? Well, Can we get closed. there in time? It's. Uh, have we let it slide too far? Uh, and, and what do we do? And for the most part, it is. You know, provincial. They are health is a provincial issue. But maybe this is time to look at it from the federal level and do Ooh. something about it. Because we, I mean, I don't think any province can survive that way when we can't get an ambulance, when there just aren't any available, when we don't have enough doctors to s- serve a province. There's something very wrong here. Is it? it is is it un-Canadian? It feels know, un-Canadian. It could be the case. But maybe it needs to come from the top down. Could be. She doesn't need an affection. She's dressed to the match. She's hot on her true feelings. No doubt she has kids to feed. She has a mommy. 842. No, we've not gone to commercial break. You've heard that commercial before on our airways. And if you're like us, wondered what it was all about. We're talking about marine phytoplankton. And joining us to explain it all is Sustainable Foods pioneer, Bluegenics founder and CEO, David Hunter. Good morning to you, David. Hey, good morning to you, too. Well, we sing that single, uh, sing that jingle, <laughs> rather, every day we hear it. It's very catchy, David. Uh, can you tell us about uh, Karen Marine Phytoplankton? What is it? How could you describe it in your words? <laughs> okay, yeah, I know, obviously, it's a big mouthful, which has, of course, been part of the challenge of this. But... So marine phytoplankton is the absolute origin and original nutrient on the planet. And it's a plant and it's in the ocean. So when the the rays of the sun penetrate the surface of the ocean, there's a whole garden of vegetables um, that are not only, you know, the first form of vitamin C, omega-3s, it's a complete whole food that sustains the whole nutritional um, needs of the ocean creatures, but it also is, they call it the lungs of the planet where it produces um, the most amount of oxygen, um, even more than the rainforest. And so um, I worked at a shellfish farm where we were kind of um, looking at phytoplankton for a food for shellfish. I'm originally from British Columbia. And as a joke, um, one of my coworkers started to eat the phytoplankton that we were feeding um, the shellfish food, and he had some really bad blood sugar issues. And um, he kind of came up to me and said, oh, hey, uh, this is 2005, too, just to give some people some idea of the, how long ago this was. And he said, you know, my blood sugar is like normal. And, uh, you know, and I don't, you know, I'm not needing to take my medication because my blood sugar is fine. I go, well, we were just joking. Oh, it's probably the fish food. And... Um, 
you know, and then we just kind of like, we started to take it and I started to have like these, um, like I had a life changing experience with migraine headaches. And one of my other coworkers like was, um, you know, his, uh, his dandruff was getting better. And so we, this kind of started this whole, um, epiphany kind of phase where it was like, well, this nutrition is, like nutrition is universal. Vitamin C is vitamin C. Well, why is like, you know, maybe we tapped into something and after we gave it to so many people and then so many people came back for it, I'm like, okay, like, you know, this is something that needs to explore. And then now this is like, I'm in year, uh, you know, I'm in year 17 of this now. And that, that whole era changed my whole life. And, wow. uh, and it felt like if, if some, if, you know, this, it's ironic that this original nutrient on the planet has been completely overlooked. And um, yeah, and it took me, um, took me to 2015 to basically write, basically I had to rewrite nutrition because there was no historical evidence of anybody ever eating phytoplankton. But I, what I saw, I saw so much kind of healing and feeling better, um, you know, for a year that, you know, I basically, you know, invested everything I had to basically make marine phytoplankton on the Health Canada books, like as a nutrient well, and a food. And let's talk about how you got Health Canada to, uh, you know, agree and, and investigate and find it a safe product in a sec. But I just want to add, yeah. so phytoplankton is completely different from seaweed? Yes, yes. Phytoplankton is completely different. Phytoplankton is its own thing. And that would be like um, comparing broccoli to spinach. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Health Canada. You know, they have approved it. It is a safe product. Yeah. And from all your research, it says that it works. Yeah, for sure. Well, the, the thing is, is that it's really still early, um, you know, with the research. So really, we just kind of just sell it as a nutrient. Obviously, we have these hooky commercials and there's a, there's more kind of coming like where we're kind of uh, building this big, um, bigger campaign called the Great Comeback, which is going to be like we're getting musicians involved and like, you know, we're promoting, you know, we're, you know, donating money to cat rescues and we're doing all these other things as well behind the scenes. But like, but the, the, and so we will get kind of criticized. They'll go, well, you, you know, you don't have the science on this and you don't have the science on that. But then, but the kind of the rebuttal is, is, well, this is a brand new nutrient, like say something like spirulina, you know, they've been researching it for 60 years. Like I just got it like, and you can't even do research unless it's licensed. So if it's only been licensed since 2015, well, we've only had seven years to do the research that we have had, which is like, basically that's like still in the womb as far as like pregnancy goes. And, um, but like where the real kind of research, I guess the real research is, and where the business case comes in is, um, 57% of people over the course of since 2015, 57% of people buy the product more than five times. And 37% of the people that bought it in 2016, when we started to mm. kind of analyze the data, still take it today. Wow. Like, so that, yeah. like, I mean, how much, you know, so mm -hmm. like, it, it, from a business case, like anybody who's in business, and I heard your business thing earlier, I mean, that's what you look at. If people come back for your product and you're not forcing them to do it, <laughs> then, you know, that tells you that, you know, there's something going on. People feel like they're getting the value for it. So um, that's why the business, you know, basically started in a basement of a restaurant in New Brunswick, and now it's yeah. nationally listed at Costco. Incredible. Um, we, got, we got to leave it there for time, David, but appreciate it because that catchy jingle got our attention. Yeah, we sure wanted did. to find out everything we could ever find out about phytoplankton, and I think you gave us a pretty good start. Thanks so much, David. 
Yeah, I appreciate your guys' time. Thank you so much. So, that's David Hunter, sustainable foods pioneer and Blue Genix founder and CEO. What they do online at thekarenproject.ca.